Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business. It's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners, too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. From CAFE, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. There's a reason why compromise is really hard, and it's even more so when the country is very divided. The calculation that all of these Republicans have to make is whether agreeing to a compromise deal on topic X allows you, the Republican, to claim victory just as much as Joe Biden can claim victory. That's Dana Bash. If you watch CNN, she needs no introduction. She's the network's chief political correspondent and recently became co-anchor of State of the Union with Jake Tapper and Dana Bash, the popular Sunday morning program. Bash has been reporting from D.C. for decades, mostly covering campaigns in Congress and moderated multiple Democratic primary debates leading up to the 2020 election. From breaking news on live TV to pounding the pavement on Capitol Hill for a scoop, Bash's career has covered the spectrum of cable news journalism. Today, she joins me to talk about her journalistic process, the future of the Senate, and how she prepares for tough interviews. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Now let's get to your questions. As you all know by now, the impeachment trial, the second impeachment trial in the Senate, is coming up for former President Donald Trump on February 9th, 2021. And there are a lot of questions swirling around about procedure and process and who presides and what the rules are and if it's fair and if there's conflicts of interest. So let me address a couple of those. This particular question comes from Twitter user Archimedes2020. GOP senators keep broadcasting their votes and feelings on impeachment. Aren't they like jurors? If this happened in a civil or criminal court, wouldn't they have to be recused? Well, you raise an excellent point. And these are the kinds of issues that we talked about not that long ago, 14, 15 months ago, when we were getting ready for the first Senate trial on impeachment for Donald Trump. The thing to remember is, notwithstanding the rhetoric that's being used by Republican and Democratic senators alike, and the fact that it is called a trial, and everyone understands it to be a trial, the the vision you have in your head of what a proper criminal or civil trial in a courtroom looks like doesn't resemble what's going to happen in the Senate. And you might recall that from last time. Every single one of the 100 senators has a view on the president, knows the president. Many of them have opined on what they think about the president's conduct in connection with the insurrection and in connection with other things. Some of them, as has been pointed out, might actually be complicit in the insurrection, depending on the facts that you believe. 
I'm referring, of course, to Senator Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz. Why is this okay? It's okay, I guess, because that's the constitutional scheme. And the founders understood that for purposes of impeachment and a trial following impeachment by the House, it's a political exercise. And although terms like trial and jurors and evidence are used, there's actually no accepted standard of proof, burden of proof, like we have in a criminal case, i.e. proof beyond a reasonable doubt. There are no particular rules of evidence that need to be complied with. There are no particular rules of confrontation and how witnesses are able to answer questions. There's no requirement that there be witnesses at all. And we saw that last time. As you point out, Archimedes 2020, if this were a real civil or criminal trial, every single juror would be struck for cause. In, in a real trial, jurors are not even allowed to know the defendant, much less have conversations with the defendant, express views about the defendant. In a real trial, jurors are not allowed to read anything about the case in the news. In this instance, most of the 100 senators are not only reading about the case, they're going on news channels themselves to talk about the case. So put out of your head all these issues of whether or not the trial is like a real civil or criminal trial in federal or state court. It's not. But you do raise interesting questions about fairness, because it is the case, even if a Senate impeachment trial doesn't perfectly match what goes on in a regular trial, people will have more or less faith in the proceedings if they seem to be fair. And so there are some issues, I think, that should be dealt with sensitively by the House managers and by the senators themselves. And so senators should take care to show that they are dealing with the proceedings in a serious way, that they take the responsibility seriously, and that they will do their best to be fair to the president, given the evidence and given the arguments that are going to be made by both sides. In connection with that, another listener, Elizabeth from California, wrote this question in an email. Quote, why is Senator Pat Leahy going to preside over the impeachment trial in the Senate? Doesn't the Constitution require that Chief Justice Roberts preside? How can Leahy be impartial if he's a sitting Democratic senator who experienced the insurrection firsthand? Again, these are great questions, and they relate to what I was saying a moment ago. First, with respect to your question about the requirement that Chief Justice Roberts preside, that is true if the impeachment trial is of a sitting president. Let's just go to Article 1, Section 3, Clause 6, which I have handily in front of me of the Constitution that says, among other things, quote, when the President of the United States is tried, the Chief Justice shall preside. It's a nice little rhyming couplet as well. In this case, of course, Donald Trump is not the President of the United States, and the Constitution doesn't say, with respect to this provision, when the President or former President of the United States is tried. So the Chief Justice is not obligated to sit. And we know from reporting that Chief Justice Roberts probably has no interest at all in presiding over the trial. And so that honor goes to Patrick Leahy in his capacity as the president pro tempore of the Senate, the longest serving member of the Democratic side. How can he be impartial? Well, you know, as we just discussed, it's hard to think of any of the hundred senators who were jurors in this case that they would be impartial. But a couple of things, I think, mitigate the concern here. Number one, the job of the person who's presiding over the Senate trial is largely ceremonial and administrative. You'll recall that when Justice John Roberts presided, he didn't do a hell of a lot. Decisions about what kind of evidence comes in and how the process unfolds are decided by the members of the Senate. They make the rules, they decide how they're going to do it, and they're the ones who vote on ultimate conviction or no conviction. So I don't think we have to worry so much that Patrick Leahy, who's a Democrat, has the ability to put the thumb on the scale in some way. And then besides that, as I said before, keep in mind that there are lots and lots of other ways in which this trial is not the same as a regular trial. Yes, in, in real life, if you can call it that, you could not have the judge in the case, the presiding judge in the case, also have a vote alongside the 12 members of the jury, which is what would be happening here. So I don't think it's that big a deal. But that said, optically, 
it's not the greatest look because reasonable, thoughtful people like you are wondering and asking the question, how can it be that you have a senator from one side, at least in a formal sense, presiding over the whole thing? Here's another question about the impeachment trial from Trudy, who writes an email from Hawaii. Quote, can you please clarify how many votes are needed to convict Donald Trump? Is it two-thirds of the total members, two-thirds of the members present at the time of the vote? What, if any, effect would any abstention have? Thank you. Well, we go back to our favorite provision of the Constitution for purposes of this morning, Article 1, Section 3, Clause 6, which says very clearly, the Senate shall have the sole power to try all impeachments. It goes on to say, and no person shall be convicted without the concurrence of two-thirds of the members present. So that's two-thirds of the members present, very clearly written in the Constitution. No debate about that. So if some members of the Senate choose not to show up, then obviously the denominator changes, and then the number you would need in the numerator to reach two-thirds would change as well. There's no evidence to suggest that you know halfway conscientious Republicans will abstain, not show up on the floor of the Senate for the vote. What we actually have seen this week is that the likelihood of conviction is pretty low, given that on the procedural vote, on the question of whether or not it was even constitutional to proceed, only five Republicans voted along with all the Democrats to say that the process is constitutional. That gives you a sense of where the Republicans are and and how much short of the 17-vote threshold we're going to be in connection with this trial. This is a question that comes from Twitter user Ben Gerald one Since Bannon has been pardoned, can he be forced to testify at the trial of his former co-conspirators? On other occasions, I've made my distaste for the Steve Bannon pardon clear. I think it's an outrageous pardon for a lot of different reasons. And one of the reasons that I've pointed out that to the extent a pardon is supposed to be about forgiving particular conduct in a criminal case, either the charges were too much or unfair or overdone or the sentence was too long. In this case, you have none of that. And one reason why you know you have none of that is that the three other co-defendants of Steve Bannon were not pardoned. So if there was something problematic about the case, something problematic about the charges, you would have expected all of them to be pardoned or none of them to be pardoned. And there's nothing that's been indicated in the record or in the statement from the White House that somehow Steve Bannon was different from the other defendants. What was different about Steve Bannon was not his conduct in the case or the nature of the charges. What was different about Steve Bannon is that he's a friend and ally of the former president, who the former president thinks could help him in some way, maybe to start a new party or get back on his feet politically. Who knows? Now, as to your question about whether or not he could be forced to testify at the Southern District of New York trial, I think a lot of people very quickly say the fact that you're pardoned means you have no Fifth Amendment privilege anymore. And it's not as simple as that, because it is possible based on certain conduct that even though you may not have criminal exposure any longer in a federal court, you could have criminal exposure in the state court. And in fact, the way I view the charges in the Bannon case, remember this fraud with respect to collecting money from people who supported Trump and supported the building of a wall to give money for that purpose, it's a fairly straightforward fraud that would violate the statutes in many, many jurisdictions in New York and in other places because there are victims all over the country. So I think there is an argument that Steve Bannon and his lawyers will be able to make that to go into federal court and testify would subject him to criminal exposure by the Manhattan DA's office and maybe some other places as well. And I think a judge would probably agree with that argument. The final question comes from Twitter user DJH11375. Excellent name. And the question is, is three too many Preet Bharara podcasts to listen to every week? Hashtag Ask Preet. My answer is no. <laughs> I guess 
The Twitter user is referring to the fact that we have launched a new podcast, Doing Justice. It's a limited series, narrative podcast, six episodes, based on my book of the same name that was a New York Times bestseller. The first episode is out. I hope you'll check it out. Every episode tells a story of some drama and dilemma that we faced in the Southern District of New York. So please search Doing Justice wherever you listen to your podcasts and subscribe for free. Hope you enjoy it. And, and by the way, let us know what you think. We'll be right back after a short break. Support for Stay Tuned comes from Mint Mobile. If there's one thing that all former U.S. attorneys for the Southern District of New York have in common, it's that we love a good sauce. It's even rumored, although I can't fact check this, that Ogden Hoffman, who served in the position from 1841 to 1845, never ate a meal dry. Now you're probably asking, what does sauce have to do with my cell phone bill? It's because Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell all of their wireless services online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. For a limited time, their premium wireless plans are just $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. To get the new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just $15 a month, you can go to mintmobile.com slash preet. That's mintmobile.com slash preet. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash preet. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on an unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Support for Stay Tuned comes from Squarespace. In this day and age, if you're starting a new project, one of the first things on your to-do list is creating a website. That might seem a bit scary at first, especially if you've never done it before. But there are tools out there that make it easy for anyone to create their own site, like Squarespace. Squarespace is an all-in-one platform that you can use to build a website and help people find your ventures. Creating a website with Squarespace is straightforward and painless, even if it's your first time making one. Whether you want to sell your products or a service, or need a place to host your blog or portfolio, Squarespace can help you get your name out there and makes it easy to find on the web. They have plenty of tools to help make your first website look pretty great too, all while customizing it to fit your particular needs. Because your site is your own, and it shouldn't be fit into a one-size-fits-all box. Get the functionality and the unique look that you need. Head to squarespace.com tuned to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain using code TUNED. My guest this week is Dana Bash, a longtime CNN journalist and anchor. Bash was a prominent voice throughout the network's wall-to-wall post-election coverage. If you watched, you probably also wondered if these people ever sleep. As we embark on the Biden presidency, Bash joins me to discuss why Trump's allies would come on CNN, whether Congress can unite to pass legislation, and how she felt during the Capitol insurrection on January 6th. Dana Bash, welcome to the show. It's so good to be here with you. Finally. Finally. Well, I don't know if you remember, but you I were do. booked I once do. a while and I back. Failed and you, on you. And you canceled on us at the last minute. Now, it's taken me two years to get over it. 
<laughs> Wasn't but, it the day the that circumst- we got the Mueller report or something? I mean, it was something No, you, huge. Know, what, you know what it was? We what went was back and the team researched it. It was the day after the election in 2018. And we thought you would do like great commentary on what it meant for the Republic. And I think that morning, Jeff Sessions was fired That's and various other crazy things happened. And um, your boss, our boss, I guess in a way, wanted you on the air. Yep. Audio, audio I mean, wasn't good enough for you that day. It made it so much easier for me that it is our boss, not just my boss. <laughs> so, so I should say- I apologize. To folks. So you, you and I have known each other for a long time. We've been friends. We were colleagues at CNN. Do, do you recall how we met? I remember. Um, I mean, I remember Let's generally. If, if, you have right. any, if you have any stories, I want to I hear it. But it generally- It was 2007. You were covering the Congress. And you were, and you were chief counsel for Senator, a, a, a very low-key, unassuming <laughs> senator from New York named Chuck Schumer. Uh, you were counsel uh, uh, for him on the Judiciary Committee. And it was- did we meet during a uh, Supreme Court nomination fight or was it something else? No, we, we met at the airport. We met at the airport? We were air- both oh in line gosh. for the shuttle. Yes. Either coming to New York or going to DC. And we were stuck in line together. And um, I think you told me lots and lots of secrets. You told me a lot about your sources. Mm-hmm. But I've kept that secret all these, yeah. all these many, all these many that's, years. That's so kind of you. I really appreciate it. Um, oh my gosh, that's right. And then I, and then of course I saw you in the hallway and I stalked you until um, you told me things, which of course you never, of course you never did ever. You are a vault, <laughs> vault. I should congratulate you. Um, as I said in the intro, you have been, I guess it's promoted to co-anchor of State of the Union the all-important Sunday morning show. And, and the reason I hesitated on the word promotion, it's a lot of work. <laughs> and and now it's going to, like, so we have a lot of things to talk about in the news, but I, I just wonder, because the Sunday shows fascinate me and I've been watching them as a nerd from the time I was in high school, uh, several of the Sunday shows and still do every week. How much work is that? It's a lot of work. And, you know, I know this is like, you know, F4 on your computer when you work in television. But in this case, what I'm about to say is really, really true, which is the team. I mean, I'm coming into a scenario where the team on State of the Union, the producers are A++. They're so good. And I've had the benefit of of working with them for a long time because I filled in a lot. I was the primary uh, fill-in when Jake would go on vacation. And so they're really amazing. Uh, but you know how it goes, kind of like with your podcast. The first challenge is landing the big the big get, which was, I know it took you three years to get me. So you see how hard <laughs> it is. <laughs> you are a very hard get. Uh, I got, no, I got no, Tapper kidding. before I got you. I, I was I was in pre-jail and then I got it let out <laughs> because I messed up so badly. But in any event, you know, I mean, honestly, like at the beginning of the week, or even weeks before, it's the race to see who you can get, who who would make sense. And usually on a Monday, you don't have a clue what the news cycle is going to be by the end of the week or what will well, matter. Especially during Trump, right? I mean, oh the news cycle gosh. changed completely on Fridays and Saturdays, didn't it? It changed from 8 a.m. on Sunday to 9 a.m. on Sunday, you know? Uh, so it was just, yeah, totally uh, bananas. But, uh, but so, but it, but look, there are a couple things. Number one is the team is awesome and they, uh, we work on not just obviously what guests we get, but when we get them, what to ask, how to ask. I mean, it's a real collaborative effort. The other thing that's cool is before I had the the honor of meeting you at an airport, <laughs> at that time I was a Capitol Hill uh, reporter or producer. At that point I was a reporter. I was on air. 
my life in TV news, it really started in the tape library at CNN, but my first real job, like within a year after that, was on these weekend shows. So I was a producer on the shows. I used to help book the show, write the show, write the pieces, you know, was in the control room, time the show, the whole thing. And so it's kind of cool for me to, to be doing this now, but I also have a sense of what it takes from the inside out. So uh, I kind of have a 360 view of it. Can we get more granular for a moment? So let's say, hypothetically, by Friday evening, you know who the guests are going to be for the Sunday morning show, and it doesn't change. Do you work all day Friday night, Saturday? What time do you get up on Sunday morning? What's what's the weekend look like? So the weekend looks like, um, yes, working on Saturday really is when, you know, the team and I kind of get together and go over where we want to go, how we want to handle it. Um, down First, just broadly and then down really in a granular way down to the ifs, ands, and buts. I mean, it changes a lot, but that that is how specific we get. And then Sunday morning, I get up around five because <clears throat> unlike you, Preet, where you can just kind of roll out of bed and go on TV, it takes a lot of work for me. I have to do hair and makeup. <laughs> That's not true. Come on. <laughs> I have a Are lot. you going into the studio these days during the yeah, pandemic? Yeah, we are. Or we are. You haven't been in, more. right? You haven't been in. You're doing I have not. You know, I was yeah. asked to come in last week and you know, I'm, I'm still more cautious uh, in the current As you should be. It's totally understandable. Yeah. So I, I have mean, my nice home studio with, with my bookcase. Yeah. So you get up at five. Yeah. And then rush, I go you in. You rush into the studio. You rush into the hair and makeup chair and I'm there for about three hours. No, I'm the, um, no, I, I get in and get all, you know, dolled up. And uh, and then we have a final meeting with the team uh, at around seven. You know, I do, I track calling track the open. So I, I put my voice to the open of the show, which you see at the beginning, which is all um, kind of a fancy beginning to the program. And then uh, and then we have our final discussion. And then I, I get in the chair and we go. Sometimes we have pre-tapes. Sometimes we you know have to tape a guest a little earlier than the actual show. But for the most part, it's, it's done live. And, you know, yes, I'm in the studio, but Pre-COVID, we were in the giant studio, which you've been in pre in DC, yes. uh, which with a lot of depth and a lot of whiz bang and a lot of light. Now I'm in a little what we call flash studio. So I'm alone. There's no camera person there. Right. There's no nothing. It's all done robotically for for safety. Do you find it harder or in, in any way easier? Like what's the difference in difficulty of interviewing someone, particularly someone who's not being very cooperative, live, you know? face-to-face at a desk as opposed to on a TV screen? That's such a good question. Um, I always prefer to have a face-to-face interview because there are human cues that each of the people, I and the person I'm interviewing, can take. And it does go both ways, which I think is where you're going with that question. Um, You know, on the one hand, you can be better about interrupting because if you have a sort of a physical cue to the person you're interviewing that you want to ask another question to, they'll stop. When you make a face, like making a face, for example. Exactly. Or you can sort of put your (laughs) hand a little bit forward or no, I'm not making a face or, or you're maybe you're making the face right now. You want me to shut up, but you put the, you put your hand forward or you could do something in a physical way uh, that you just can't do when you're remote. The flip side is if you're having a contentious interview, which I have had in, in person and they are determined to, uh, you know, kind of continue the contentious dynamic of that interview, um, you know, they can just 
watch you try to say, okay, I'm done and roll right over you, which has definitely happened. So it goes both ways. But for the most part, I prefer to be in person. Don't you? You know, I I used to. It's complicated for me. And I don't know if I should How break come? down the fourth fourth wall too, too much for listeners. Oh, all right. I, I now have a preference in some ways for not being in person and being remote and not being able to see the person. Huh. In part because, and maybe surprising to some folks, I, I, I at the beginning... I, at the beginning, when I started the podcast, I would fly places to go interview people because I thought it was so important to be in the room. I flew to interview Leon Panetta, who was my first guest. I flew out to interview the Pod Save America guys, Judd Apatow to LA at you know, great expense and time. There's something about having the audio experience that is the same experience that the audience has and allows me not to have to worry about you know, making eye contact with the person, you know, making sure they have water, and all these other things. When I have someone now just in my ears... I can look down at my notes. I can focus purely on their voice. And in some ways, it's an easier experience for me. That is so is that interesting. Is No, it's actually, it makes perfect sense. Because as you're saying that I'm sitting here at, in my little home office, looking up, staring into space, listening to you. And that's the experience I'm having. I'm having the audio experience and not other, um, other senses. That's really fascinating. Well, I get interviewed a lot also. And when I'm being interviewed, I vastly prefer to be in person, be able to see the other human, you know, speaking to me and interacting and pick up on their cues. But when I'm doing the interviewing, I mean, I like both. Mm -hmm. Here's the other thing. I think if it's someone I've never met before, never spoken to before, then pure audio is not great because there's some value in having that, those few minutes before you tape in the studio to, to bond with someone and, you know, maybe have some conversation, break the ice, as they say. I mean, do you do that in the commercial break when you're going to have a guest? I try to. Do you have go-to lines and jokes to soften them up? No, I mean, it. Uh, like you said, it depends on whether or not I know them. I mean, I these days it's, are you healthy? Are you okay? Is your family right, okay? Right. Which is, you know, not just a, it's not just pablum. It's a real question, right? On the other hand, if you know an interview is going to be contentious, it's, it's, a, it's a little bit of a toss-up whether or not you want to talk to them before or afterwards, right? Right. Um, right. Because uh, you want to maybe sometimes keep distance. It's probably, I mean, I, obviously when you were prosecuting terrorists, you didn't have the option of buttering them up, right? But but other than that, yeah, being that. on the, being, you know, when you're in the courtroom, the dynamic probably isn't that different in that you want to kind of keep a distance to do the best you can. Well, actually, that's interesting. I, I write about interrogation in, in my book, Doing Justice, and in fact, there is an opportunity if you're trying to get the terrorist or any other criminal defendant to flip and cooperate and tell you about their scheme and tell you about their cohorts. There is a period of buttering up. And, you know, I tell stories about how bringing them sandwiches or their native food mm -hmm. from whatever country That's they're right. from, if they're not from the United States, you know, causes people to want to talk. I mean, it, it is obviously very different to being, you know, the difference between being interviewed on State of the Union and in an interrogation room at 26 Federal Plaza where the FBI is housed in New York. But the principles of trying to get people to talk and to open up, they kind of overlap no matter what the scenario is. It's human, right? True? I mean, what yeah. you just said about giving them their native food and everything, it's, it's, it's a basic ele element of humanity. Yeah, and I find, I mean, just as a general matter, I wasn't planning to go in this direction to talk sort of psychology of humans, but <laughs> do you find it to be the case, having done this for a long time, that the default for most human beings is that they want to be left alone and not speak? or they want to get stuff off their chest and, and do want to speak? I think it's the latter. Do you? 
I do too. And I think that's not necessarily intuitive. Uh-huh. I think people want to, I mean, I guess it's, it's not clear that they, they want to spill their secrets and be interrogated, you know, about things that they've done on live television. But, but I do. I think as a general matter, people want to be heard and they want their stories to be told. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I, don't, mean to, I don't mean to belabor the point on difficult guests, but it's just fascinating to me. If you know you're going to have an obstreperous guest who's not going to be so cooperative, um, I have a number of questions. Question one is, why the hell do they come on the show if they know it's going to be that kind of an interaction? It's a really good question. It it depends on the uh, on the person. During during the Trump years, a lot of times they would come on the show because they wanted to show their boss, the president, how how well they could fight. Right. And it was real. We were talking about real issues, but the answer to why they would put themselves through it, that's the answer. Because he wanted people to go out there and fight for him and uh, speak his language. And so that was definitely a, a thing in, in those years. Other times, there are people who enjoy the debate and enjoy the fight. Um, you know, it's probably going to be a long time before we talk to somebody like Ted Cruz again because of his involvement in the big lie about the election. But, you know, he's somebody who was a debater his whole life, and he actually he actually enjoys it in normal times. Um, Lindsey Graham is another example of that. You know, he he doesn't he doesn't mind the tough questions. He um, he he enjoys it, even though he knows he's going to get a lot of them these days. Again, he's another one we haven't talked to in a while, uh, but he would be okay with it. Uh, and and in other times, it just depends on where they're coming from. I mean, sometimes people know that they have to take their lumps and take their medicine, depending on you know if they're trying to come through a bad time and come out the other side. Sometimes you just have to answer the tough questions. But then there are other times where I've heard you and other anchors say, depending on the circumstance, we asked, you know, all 52 Republican senators if they would want to come on the show, and they all said no. So there are moments when people just flee the scene, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, and that was definitely the case more times than not in the Trump era, because they didn't want to have to answer for his shenanigans. And it, it went obviously way beyond shenanigans towards the end. It, it got extremely dangerous. And um, and those that did are now paying the price in the court of public opinion in that court in which facts actually matter, not in the echo chamber where they tend to be hiding. Right. So when you have a difficult guest coming up, who you worry is going to be misleading, certainly you prep a lot. You look at their oh, prior yeah. statements. I once made a suggestion on Twitter, which was, you know, half serious. Um more than half serious. You know, what, what prosecutors do and trial lawyers do, uh, and even appellate lawyers, they get mooted. Meaning, if they know they're going to have a difficult witness, they have some other person, one of their colleagues, be a stand-in for that witness. I mean, we would do this even in, in congressional hearings. I would play, you know, the attorney general and Senator Schumer would ask me questions so he could get used to the idea of the back and forth because you can't script out questions when you have an intelligent, you know, uh, adversary in the interview. Do you guys do that? Do you, do you ever sit around and say, hey, Wolf, come over here, um, pretend to be Paul Manafort or someone else? Not in a formal way like that in regular interviews. When we do debate prep, absolutely. Uh, we we mock it. We call it, like you said, we mock it. And we uh, we have people playing all of the candidates. With regard to to interviews, we do it in a less formal way, or at least me. I'll just speak for myself. When I when I do it, I do it in a less formal way. Sometimes 
you know, I'll be with our, with the team, with the producers, and I'll say the question and then I'll, and I'll say what I know the answer will be. And then that's how we'll prepare the follow-up. Um, so we, we talk it out and that's how we prepare, not just the follow-up, but the, the, what we call the backup, all of the information and facts to back up what they have said in the past, thinking that they will either deny it or try to go in a different direction. But but you know, you know that's actually a good idea to do it in a more formal way. I'm it available. Does work in the hey, okay. You you want to call me? I up got on a your Saturday number. And <laughs> it's kind of fun. It's kind of fun to play a character because you know, I, I guess my my other question is how often? I mean, you do a lot of prep and you're very smart. How often are you surprised at the answers you're getting, such that you have to you know think in the moment about how to respond because the answer is so uh, surprising to you. And, and there's one interview in, in, in particular that I know got a lot of attention. Yeah. That maybe is a an issue you want to discuss, uh, or maybe there are other examples. But you know, there was that moment where you interviewed Kellyanne Conway. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And you That's tried to get into a topic that I thought was perfectly appropriate, and she went after you in a, in a particularly harsh way about bringing up her marriage. Did you expect that? No. That's a really good example. Um, this was before, this was just at the beginning of George Conway starting to tweet or he, at the beginning, he retweeted other people's anti-Trump statements. And it was just at the very beginning of that. And nobody had brought it up with her at all. And it wasn't really a thing. And he was definitely not out (laughs) as a, uh, as an anti-Trumper the way he is now. And I honestly thought that what I expected and we anticipated what I said to the team was, she's going to laugh it off as a, oh, you know, finally, a, a, you know, a woman gets asked about what her husband is doing as opposed to vice versa, you know? And that's not what happened at all. It is and not. Once you remind uh, people what happened. So what happened was, I, I, and that's why I asked her in kind of a tongue-in-cheek way at the end of the interview, I said something like, so what's up with your husband's tweets? And she launched at me because I did. and I honestly did it in a kind of jovial way because I thought that she was going to respond in kind and it did not happen. Um, you know, how dare you? Uh, you know, this is what's, you know, of course, attacking me, attacking CNN. And let's if you want to talk about marriages. And I was like, OK, I'm just asking. Oh, no, no, no. You just brought him. You just brought him into this. So this ought to be fun moving forward, Danner. OK, We're now going to talk about other people's people's spouses and significant others just because they either work in the White House or at CNN. Are we going to do that? Because you just, no, you just went there. Yes, CNN yes. CNN just went there. Look, differences of opinions. I'm not, by, this is, by the way, this, by isn't, definition, this isn't critical. I'm just asking about. Oh, of course about, it was. It was meant to harass and embarrass, but let me just tell you absolutely something. Absolutely not. Let me just tell you something. By definition, spouses have a difference of opinion I when adultery is happening. I not agree more. By definition, spouses have a difference of opinion when one is, I don't know, draining the joint bank account to support things that maybe the other disagrees with. So this is a fascinating cross the Rubicon moment. And, uh, and I'll leave it at that. Okay. And, um, it was, it was pretty intense and I had to be in the moment. I mean, we ended up killing a commercial break and just turning. I, I, I remember that the next guest was, uh, Bob Corker, who was the foreign relations chair at the time. And I turned to the camera cause she was in studio. That's another example of you talking about tough interviews, not being in right. studio. I actually think that was helpful that we could have each other's, um, that we'd have eye contact with one another. But that went way longer than it was supposed to because it was just supposed to be kind of a kicker question. And then they killed the commercial break and I turned to the camera because he was remote. And I started asking about like something really deep about 
Syria or Iran or some substantive issue, and it was just a total, um, you know, it was like dizzying the the difference. And um, <laughs> yeah, you have to be ready, and you have to be ready. And and with someone like her, I've known her for twenty years, and so um, I I felt like I could kind of go head to head, but I also didn't want to be like I wasn't. I didn't ask the question to be a jerk. I didn't ask the question to get into her personal life. I asked the question because it was becoming a thing. And and I actually thought that she would feel like it was a safe place to um, to say something. But Preet, I hit a nerve, which we all know now is true. And um, I didn't know I was hitting the nerve when I hit it. Do you, maybe this is an unfair question, but I'm going to ask it anyway because it's my podcast. Uh, <laughs> having known her for that period of time and, and observed her since, do you think that Kellyanne Conway believes all the things she says in praise of Donald Trump, or is she acting? Oh my gosh, that is a hard question. Um, I think that she has a very different relationship with him than most people. And she can talk to him in a way that most people can't. He talks to her in a way that most pe- that he doesn't with most people. And she uses that as the foundation for what she has done. Does she support everything that he's done? Absolutely not. Does she support things uh, that he's done that um, that maybe she said that she did support uh, in public? Sure, because everybody who worked for him understood that in order to be a Trump person, you have to be all in, no matter what. And so, look, I think with like with all of the people, not all of, I think with a lot of the people who worked for him, it is a complicated thing. Preet, I bet you've even talked to people who work who worked for uh, Trump who will tell you in private moments the real deal. Or, oh my gosh, if I wasn't there, you think it's bad now? It would have been 50 times worse if I weren't there. Oh yeah, absolutely. Look, I'm sure, you know, forget about people who've worked for him. You have a lot of congressional sources. Or I think lots of Republican members of Congress who are publicly supportive are privately critical and not even critical, but dismissive. So I think I think there's a large universe of people, particularly in in recent days and weeks, and will probably multiply, who don't like the things that he's done and want to put some separation between you know them and him, right? Yeah, yeah. No, oh my gosh, no question. Especially now, except for those who don't, except those who don't want to put separation between them and him because they are from I don't know a state like South Carolina where he is incredibly popular, or right. or, or if you're a QAnon member of the house. Or if you're a QAnon and you actually believe the off-the-wall conspiracy theories that is now completely plaguing the Republican Party. It's it's really frightening. I mean, can you imagine from the days you walked the halls of Congress and the Republicans you dealt with, what was it now, uh, 15 years ago, that um, any of them would be even close to where some of these people are espousing these crackpot theories that you know, Democrats are part of a pedophile ring. I mean, are you kidding me? These people are elected. Yeah. You know, speaking of Congress, some of the things we've been talking about are, you know, I don't mean staged interviews in the sense that they're rehearsed, but when you interview someone on the Sunday show or uh, at the Capitol where it's prearranged and formalized, where there's a debate, that's one thing. You know, the thing that was astonishing to me with respect to the press when I went to work on the Hill and, and maybe people don't have a full sense of this, but, and, and this is one of the first times I'm sure I saw you. If you're a member of, of the Senate or the House, and my experience was in the Senate, 
there is no hiding. Nope. Like there is for a governor or some other executive where Andrew Cuomo or, you know, Gavin Newsom or whoever can hole up in their mansion and decide when they're going to meet the press or not meet the press. Um, yep. Not to, not to mention a different competing show of yours. <laughs> but if you're a member of the Senate, I remember accompanying Senator Schumer to the floor to vote. Mm-hmm. That is a public corridor. I mean, the senators have their own elevator, so you can't get into an elevator with a, with a member. You can but if you're invited. I've done. If you're invited, yeah, yeah. But you, right, but you can't <laughs> yeah. push your way in. You can't. And, and depending on what's going on, it was an astonishing thing to see. You just get mobbed sometimes by reporters and it's a long way back to your office before you can it's shut away. It's a very long way. The reporters, and you did that, right? What was that like? Day in, And what's the and strategy of, I don't mean to use a negative or pejorative verb because it's obviously good for the First Amendment and good for public. But, you know, from, from my perspective, it looked a little bit like a member is like walking to get a sandwich and, oh no, there's Dana Bash and now she's going to ask me 11 questions about some bill on the floor. Did you enjoy that? Is that a weird thing to do? How do you feel about that? Uh, it's not a weird thing to do. I enjoyed it. Congress is the best beat for a reporter, full stop. And it's for that reason, for, for the dynamic that you just described, it's awesome because there is no place for them to hide unless, I mean, well, there is, there are places for them to hide, but if they, if, and when they have to do their most basic job, which is to vote, they have to go. Unfortunately, now people have seen the insides of those halls in a in a horrible way. But usually, it is, it is quite different. And they have to come onto the second floor of the Capitol, either on the Senate side or the House side. That's where the the chambers are, and they have to go through one of four doors that surround the perimeter of that chamber to go vote. And so, some of the doors we can't. We as members of the press aren't able to stand out in front of. But for the most part, we can. And it's the culture. And it is amazing. I mean, look, members of Congress get a lot of crap. And in some cases, it is um, <clears throat> it is well-deserved. But for the most part, it is remarkable. You know, two decades on and off that I spent, you know, stalking <laughs> these members of Congress. And to watch and to That's listen to them. That's your word. You said stalking. Yeah. I mean, it is. And it is. It is but it, it, to watch them not just answer questions uh, about whatever the issue of the day is, but they get like, you know, somebody from the Farmer's Daily uh, or the Energy, you know, Gazette, and they ask really granular questions to these members on a host of issues every single day in the hallway. And to watch these members, for the most part, have a, a real understanding and a handle on the policy to be able to answer those questions is is kind of remarkable. I mean, you really have to be a jack of all trades and to know your stuff in order to um, engage with reporters, as is such the culture on Capitol Hill. Look, I will tell you, you know, you, you said things that foreshadow my, my next question. I found that to be remarkable, that at any moment, without a memo, without prep, without advance warning, you could have thrust at you as you're walking down the hallway to vote a question about your home state, a question about a vote, a question about something that maybe came out in the paper 20 minutes earlier that you haven't had a chance to see. Uh, and, you know, for the most part, there are, obviously we've all seen videos where members pretend that you don't exist, that a reporter doesn't exist, and they just walk <laughs> along and they don't want to do anything crazy so that they go viral for being non-responsive. But, but to have at your fingertips some kind of substantive answer to anything under the sun is something else. And so my question to you is, which maybe you've answered, over your long 
career of covering Congress, has your respect for Congress generally, and obviously the particular people you might feel more or less strongly about, but overall over that time, did you come to have more respect or less respect for the members? A lot more respect. A lot. For for that reason, uh, the fact that for the most part, and there were people who didn't know what they were talking about, <laughs> um, but for the most part, these members are, are pretty read in to the issues that matter to their um, to their constituents. They're read in about the issues that I mean, we wouldn't be asking them a question, for example, you know, that Senator John Doe um, is on the Foreign Relations Committee. They would be asked real questions, real substantive questions about treaties, about, um, you know, summits going on, about about all kinds of things that the general public would have no clue about because of the committees that they sit on. And so for the most part, they're, they're pretty well-versed in that. And not just that, I'll take it a step further beyond their knowledge. For the most part, the QAnon, you know, members now aside and the people who are even are pretty close to that caucus, um, who shall, who I don't need to name because everybody knows who they are now. But for the most part, I found in my years that people came to Congress Yes, they had egos and they, you know, like like to be in the spotlight, but they came to Congress with a point of view, with an idealism, with a with a very specific philosophy on how they wanted things done or not done with regard to big government, with regard to taxes, with regard to smaller government, and you name it. But they they wanted to do good and do right. People got off track and politics is, you know, can get very um can, can become poison. Uh, but for the most part, that was why and how people came in. Did you find that as well as you, because I know on judiciary, you had to deal with, I mean, it's a partisan committee more than others, but um, it's not like the ag committee where people all get along across no, I, I, uh, I feel like people lines, in the but, Senate, I don't, mean to make, I don't mean no disparagement to the House, but I mean, look, Chuck Schumer, my former boss, used to say the following, and he came from the House. <laughs> he would say- Yes, he did. He would say this publicly, so I don't think I'm going to get in trouble with my old friends there. He would say, you know, when I was in the House, I looked at my colleagues and by and large, they were really honorable and respectable and smart and impressive people. But, you know, there were some people, they were in very safe districts. You kind of wondered how they got there, mm-hmm. right? And he said, when I That's got to fair. the Senate, I looked at my 99 colleagues over time and I don't agree with all of them. And some of them I disagree with pretty vehemently or I have a different style or whatever the case may be. But I looked at my 99 statewide elected colleagues from their, you know, various respective states. And I know why each of them is here. Each of them has some very, or set of very special qualities of leadership, agree with them or not agree with them. And that was one way he described the difference between the Senate and the House. Is that fair? Mm, Yeah, I think that is fair. Especially now with regard to um, safe districts. I mean, the, the gerrymandering is so out of control that there are so many safe districts in, in both sides, uh, on both sides rather. And so because of that, you get QAnon members <laughs> because whoever wins the primary wins the, wins the seat. We'll be right back to my interview with Dana Bash after this. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, 
Who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. What is it like to break news as a person? It's such a rush. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. Why? Why, why is it? Why? Why is it such a rush? Yeah, because it's like catching. You're the, a it's like it's like catching the football in the end zone. It's like it's like the home run. It's like I mean, pick your sports metaphor. It's just. It's like getting the, you know, guilty plea on a, on a terrorist. I mean, it's a not guilty plea. Well, guilty the first conviction. few examples, the first few me- metaphors are about games. The second was more serious. Well, okay. That's fair. That's fair. That's fair. But there, but it's the same. Okay. It's a serious thing and it's, and it's a public service that, that you do and you did, but it's still a feeling of this is why I'm in this. And I did what I set out to do you're right to, to differentiate those. And it, it it depends on the issue. Sometimes I break news and it's like interesting, but it's not going to change the world. Um, at times I have broken news where it, it, it's been interesting and it matters in terms of the trajectory of whatever the story is or whatever the moment is in time. I'll give you one example. It was, I think when you and I were on the Hill together, it was after 9-11 and the Intelligence Committee was briefed on the fact that the NSA had gotten intercepts the day before, on September 10th, 2001, saying something along the lines of tomorrow, it's, it's the game is tomorrow, or the, the, the match is tomorrow, something like that. And they didn't translate it until September 12th. And, you know, it was it was one example of a big miss. We, we I got the information, we broke the story, and... I personally think that it mattered in as part of the the tapestry of the narrative of why and how America missed 9-11. Yeah. Is there a difference between breaking that kind of news from sources and talking to people and working the phones and shoe leather, as they used to say, versus another way, I guess you can break news given your sort of higher, more prominent role is you elicit something from someone on a, in a live television interview. And I guess that is some form of breaking news, but that's that's less of a rush, is it? Yes, it's a totally different um, feeling. And you described it perfectly, Preet. It's the difference between, you know, behind the scenes, working sources, um, you know, off camera in, in a really delicate way, and then getting the story versus being on a high wire act of a live interview and getting something, somebody to admit something or to say something or um, having a moment, which you're right, is breaking news because it will matter later on, but it's a a different kind of um, accomplishment is the wrong word, but it's a different, it's a different kind of, of reason why I do what I do. You know, I mean, it, it gives me a different kind of sense of, of accomplishment. Do you get nervous ever when you're going to go and do a live shot or do the Sunday show? Yeah, sometimes. What makes you nervous? It depends. First of all, I do think that it's, I think it's healthy to have some butterflies because it keeps us on our, our toes. Yeah. Well, um, I have them. I have, I have them before even these interviews. I have, and I know you well. Yeah, I think that's right. Really? Yeah, because you want it to go well. I'm very intimidating. So I can. You are. You know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you curse on television, my friend. Gosh, I think you're the only darn. person who can do that. 
Um, is the most nervous you get, I'm just guessing here, is the most nervous you've gotten moderating a, a presidential debate? 100%. I was just going to say that. That's the hardest. Uh, absolutely. I mean, I, I, you know, like anything, at the beginning, when you first start speaking, it's it's nerve-wracking and then you kind of get into a groove. But there have been times where I am convinced that people can hear my heart beating over the microphone <laughs> because that's how nervous I am. And you just have to force yourself to get in the zone. And, who's more nervous? Um, who's who's more nervous, Dana, in those circumstances? The moderators or the candidates? I don't know. I kind of for me, I'll speak for myself. Maybe me. <laughs> maybe yeah, but me. You don't show it and they don't show it. Yeah. Because all, because the game in life it. Yeah, the game in life is in part to to hide all of that. I mean, people are nervous all the time and you can't let them see you sweat. So so as but as it unfolds. Do you get in your groove and you're fine or not? For the most part, for the most part, unless something, you know, sometimes something happens and it, it throws you, you have to try to try to roll with it. Um, but uh, for me personally, I, it's the anticipation of it and the beginning of whatever I'm doing. And then once I am in it, I'm a little bit more relaxed. How about you? Do you feel that way? Yeah. Cause once you're, once it's going well and there's a rapport in an interview or when I'm giving a speech and the audience seems to be paying attention and not all running to the bathroom, <laughs> you get some confidence. Do you, do you, do you worry that, you know, a, a fly will land in your hair and you'll become a, a meme for the next six months? Oh my gosh. Can you believe that happened? But that's a television thing that people have to worry about. It happens, I right? I know. I know. It's definitely happened. Oh, I have a lot of, I have a lot of, um, trying to think. I mean, I've had lights fall on me during live shots, like outside in the, in a blizzard. I've had, um, I've definitely had things happen, you know, uh, during, during live shots, but never a fly. It's not <laughs> something that I worried about. It's not something that I worried about until I saw it happen to my tents. And now I'm worried about it. <laughs> so can I tell you one of, the, one of the hardest things for me as, as just a, uh, legal analyst on CNN when just a legal analyst. So I'm senior. I'm senior legal analyst. When, uh, yeah. When, when there was breaking news, there have been multiple times I've been in the air to address some topic, and then there was a filing in the Mueller case, oh, or yeah. something something broke with respect to impeachment or something else. And I'm sitting there with either you or Jake Tapper or Wolf Blitzer or someone, and they say breaking news, and they'll they'll tell me sort of the headline of the thing that happened. And it's live television, national television. I know my parents are watching too, by the way, which is- Oh, you know, that, that's the, honestly, for me, that's one of the most <laughs> intimidating things. People but may not know. We'll my mom and dad, they watch every single, every single, it's like coming to, you know, your your games uh, in sports when you were a kid. My, my mom and dad, which is one reason I love them very much, they watch every appearance. And so now you're being asked these questions. And my training has been, I'm not going to answer a question about a legal argument unless I've read the entire thing that was submitted or had a chance to think about it, research it, discuss with my colleagues. I mean, I spend a lot of time doing all that when I prepare for these podcasts. And there you are, a lot of television, deer in the headlights. So my experience has been, you know, panic about not wanting to say something stupid, but also wanting to say something meaningful. But that's happened to you a million times in your career because you're on television a lot. How do you deal with that? You know, having to answer something in the moment when you don't know that much detail about the thing? It's not easy. <laughs> I mean, it's just not. There's no other way to say it. Um, you know, you learn to just tap dance around the things that you... Um, and just to say, the th say what you know and not go any further, you know? Um, I mean, that's really the key. 
What do you do? Yeah, I sort of stammer and <laughs> try to sound intelligent. But, but look, I think cable news is very valuable and CNN is is one of my employers. And I think there's a, it is a very, very valuable function in there being a 24-hour news channel, multiple 24-hour news channels, especially when there's crazy things happening in our country. But, you know, sometimes in the moment of breaking news, before there's a lot of understanding, having people who are, you know, trained and smart, but don't know enough about that particular subject, I'm not saying it does a disservice, but it, it's a weird moment that is necessitated by the fact that you have these networks that are on 24 hours a day and live. And I don't know a better way to go about it. I think I think what people should do is be careful about what they say and then everyone work really quickly and assiduously in the moments following it to read the documents and to call people and get some background so that, you know, as minutes pass and, and hours pass, the understanding being presented to the American public is deeper. But boy, it's a moment of sheer panic when something happens new that you haven't had a chance to check out yet. Look, I mean, do you remember that Bush v. Gore? Oh, of course. From years ago. Oh my goodness. And, and correspondents were running out of the Supreme Court building trying to figure out what the hell had happened. You know, it, in retrospect, it's kind of comical, but that's what happens when you have live TV. Yeah, and you have to have bosses who recognize the stakes on something especially like that and say, we're going to take a beat. We're just going to talk about what we got and we're going to let the people who... Uh, are reading it, read it and digest it. And and it, you talk about the Mueller filing. I mean, that's a great example. We had this unbelievable team of people. And when we knew something was going to come out or anticipated or even thought something was going to come out, there was a plan about how to do just that so that we could um, contextualize it and digest it properly. Look, I'll tell you, when the Mueller report came out, I think, I think we knew the date certain in advance and CNN flew me down to DC before the pandemic, obviously, I don't know if I was asked to come on in the morning, but I preferred to come on in the afternoon. And I sat in my hotel room and all I did over, you know, multiple Diet Cokes mm -hmm. was read that report cover to cover. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. then I felt com comfortable coming on in the afternoon. So I guess, you know, if you have some ability to, to plan out preparation, it makes a difference. The insurrection, oh my you know, gosh. that was an act of violence against the branch of government that you've been covering for a long time. Yep. Two questions. One is, how big a deal was that against the backdrop of your reporting on that body for a number of years? And two, what do your sources, both Democratic and Republican, say about how it made them feel in the aftermath? Um, well, to take the, the last part of your question first, terrible. I mean, people felt terrible. They just felt so violated on so many levels as humans as people who work in the in that building and as kind of, you know, renters of the building, you know, people who are just there because they were elected to, to, to be there or work for people who were elected to be there or reporters who cover that building. And it's completely traumatic. I mean, the stories from, and we've heard a lot of the stories of from members of Congress, from their staff about locking doors, getting under tables, turning the lights off, not wanting to make a peep so that people didn't come in. Again, that is against the backdrop of those of us who walked those halls so many years, you, know, you included, Preet, of feeling very safe there. I mean, the only time I didn't feel safe in the Capitol was on 9-11. And, uh, you know, it was for obvious reasons. And, and at that time, one of the reasons I didn't feel safe was because the cops themselves were, you could see that they were rattled and they were screaming at us to get out of the building because they thought a plane was coming. 
And other than that, it felt very fortified. Uh, you know, you get to know these police officers. You know that they're there to have your, they, they've got your back as somebody who's physically in the building and not to mention, more importantly, the members of Congress. And they were completely and totally overwhelmed. And they were, they, they didn't, they didn't have a, a chance. And, you know, now that we have the benefit of more time, yeah, there were obviously some people who did some really stupid things, like the guy with the selfie. And, you know, hopefully we won't hear hear more about any uh, real um, collusion, uh, to use a, a term, uh, between any m- members of the Capitol Police and, and, these, uh, and these rioters, uh, potential assassins, not just rioters, potential assassins. But for the most part, they did what they had to do and they protected the people and they and they uh, said, we're just going to give up the building and protect the people. But it's just, it's so, I still can't believe what I saw. I mean, think about when you walk down the, you know, walk across the, the, the second floor of the Senate when you were there, you need to show your pass. You need to, you can't, you, sometimes if there's a dignitary there, you can't get from one side of the hallway to another. And to think that those basic protocols that were in place to protect everybody. I mean, that was thrown out the window and these people were just fearful for their own lives. It just, it breaks my heart. Well, what was shocking to me visually was to see these rioters come on the Senate floor, which by the way, is very, very restricted. Members can go on the floor and not even all staff, like high ranking staff had general passes. And my recollection is that other staff on a case-by-case basis could be admitted to the floor. The public never could be on the floor, my recollection is, right? Is that right? They, they could watch right. proceedings by coming uh, on, into the gallery on the, on the mezzanine or the floor above. The third floor, yeah. On the third yep. floor, where some of the press stuff is. But to see that violation and see people sitting in the president's chair and rifling through the desks, you know, I, I always think about the opening chapter of Bob Caro's book, uh, Master of the Senate, where he talks his whole chapter about the desks of the Senate. And, you know, if you have a reverence for that, because you have a reverence for democracy, seeing people, you know, just desecrate it like that was an unbelievable thing. Do you think that Mitch McConnell had a change of heart about Trump? Or did he always have a problem with Trump so far that he was, as he was a useful person for him, for judges, and now he has no more use for him. And this is a reason for him to try to put him in the rearview mirror. Or do you think he had a visceral reaction to seeing what you and I saw happen to the Senate? I think he had a visceral reaction. Um, you know, he he he's obviously a controversial figure when it comes to uh, his uh, quote unquote reverence for the Senate, since he follows the rules that fit his agenda at the time. Right. And even he would, and even yes. he would admit that. I mean, you know, um, I, I give you Merrick Garland, uh, and then I give you uh, uh, Amy Coney Barrett as exhibits A and B. But on a personal level, at that point, he was already so pissed off at Donald Trump because Trump stopped talking to him after he, McConnell, went on the Senate floor and said that Joe Biden was the president-elect and it was a free and fair election on December 14th, I think it was. And after the states uh, certified their uh, the Electoral College, you know, in, independent before they got to the Congress— and Trump stopped talking to him. And so between then and January 6th, remember, there was the stimulus bill that that the president's, then president's team negotiated. And McConnell 
you know, agreed to it, begrudgingly agreed to it. And then by the time it got to the president's desk, he watched something on Fox and he said, oh, never mind. And he wouldn't take McConnell's calls. I mean, he completely stopped talking to McConnell because he was angry that McConnell acknowledged reality that Donald Trump lost the election. And so you have that, you know, over the last month or so. But let's be honest, and I know this is an issue near and dear to your heart as a um, lawyer, as a former U.S. attorney, as a former counsel uh, to a key senator on the Judiciary Committee. Mitch McConnell had already gotten what he needed out of Donald Trump, which is to completely fill the federal bench with the kind of conservative judges that he wanted. Trump doesn't really, you know, he he claimed to care about it because it was politically expedient for him to do, but he let McConnell run the show on that. And McConnell got everything he wanted out of it. And the question I will always have is, was it worth it? Yeah, but there's one thing he didn't get. He got robbed of the other thing that he wanted, which was to retain control of the Senate. Totally. And, and that's and when he, he said, I'm believe, out. Yeah, he might believe that, but for Donald Trump's shenanigans and the crazy things that were said in Georgia and attempted in Georgia, he should have retained the Senate. So he got what he wanted in some sense. And then the other thing that he wanted, he didn't get. So he has a double reason to abandon Trump at this point. Do you think that McConnell's vote on conviction in the Senate with respect to impeachment is in doubt? If I were to guess, and I could have egg in my face when they actually vote, if I were to guess, he will find a way to vote no. He'll say it's not constitutional or, you know, pick your pick your reason. So you think he'll vote procedurally, but not defend the, the president's action? Yes. Do you? I mean, because look, we don't even know the level of pushback that he's getting. It, it is off the charts for, again, standing up and speaking the truth. And uh, even last week when he went to the Senate floor and said, again, the president is responsible for what happened, that he incited this mob. I mean, he is he believes that he is angry about that. But even in saying that, the base is still the Trump base. And a lot of his members are scared of that base because they they share the same base. And um, they're getting a lot of pressure. And Mitch McConnell is getting a ton of pressure. And, um, you know, I've talked to Republican senators who are mad at him for, for speaking the truth, saying he's ripping apart the party. We got to move on. So we'll see. We'll see what he does. But regardless of what he does in his heart of hearts, maybe this is going to go too far. But I get, I'm guessing he believes it was an impeachable offense. And I'm just saying that based on his own words over the past few weeks. Which of the following two senators do you think is more disliked and or frustrating to their Republican colleagues, Josh Hawley or Ted Cruz, <laughs> based um, on all of your contacts and sources? I would say Ted Cruz is, has deeper roots in that um, <laughs> in that area because he's been there longer and he's right. um, he's made uh, his colleagues mad at various times. Uh, on various topics. And so the the length of the, at times, real animus between the majority of his colleagues and him is, is longer. Uh, but Josh Hawley is, uh, is, is getting up there. He's you know, <laughs> getting he is, up there. <laughs> he's getting up there. He really is. And, and the thing is, it's not as if it's not complicated on this particular issue for most Republican senators. Because, I mean, even the the ones who are very clear-eyed in private and in public, 
you know, from Mitt Romney to Rob Portman to others, I mean, they have constituents who think that Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz are, they, they say right on guys because they believe it because they've been fed the lies. You know, their constituents watch Fox News and listen to conservative radio and uh, are on conservative social media. And so it makes it much harder for them to speak the truth when they have their colleagues telling their own constituents lies. It seems to me like a, a terrible dynamic that has become more, more and more pervasive is it used to be the case that getting something done was great, you know, and you have, you know, a lot of bills where there's a famous Democrat and a famous Republican on them and benefit, you know, inured to both sides on that. And it seems like more recently, people are afraid of giving the other side a win. So if they pass something tremendous on transportation or infrastructure or something else, it seems to me that a lot of people are held back by this idea of giving Joe Biden a win, a victory, and they don't want that. Do you find that to be true? It's always the case uh, that it, it's hard. I mean, <laughs> there's a reason why compromise is really hard, and it's even more so when the country is very divided. The calculation that all of these Republicans have to make is whether agreeing to a compromise deal on topic X allows you, the Republican, to claim victory just as much as Joe Biden can claim victory. And if you if they look at it from that point of view, like this Republican senator I was talking about said, then, then that's good. I mean, they can go home to their states and say, look at what I got, infrastructure. Look, look, it's physical. Look at this road that's going to be built. I did this for you. Look at that bridge that's going to be built. I did this for you. If they only look at it through the prism of, the presidency and what Joe Biden is going to get and the victory he can claim, then nothing's ever going to get done. But you know what? Biden is Biden is such an old school negotiator that he understands that. He can go to Republican Senator John Doe and say, look, if we do this, you can claim victory. You can you can say you got this. He he understands that in the art of of negotiation, the everybody has to be able to claim victory on something. And um Despite the fact that the former president called it the art of the deal, that's not ever something that he put into practice when he was in government. Dana Bash, congratulations on all your success. It was so and fun to talk to you. CNN, it was, it was great fun. By the way, I should mention, otherwise Zucker's going to get mad, CNN number one mm-hmm. in recent ratings, besting Fox and that other network. Anyway, thanks for being on, Dana. Dana. <laughs> okay, thanks, Bree. My conversation with Dana Bash continues for members of the Cafe Insider community. To try out the membership free for two weeks, head to cafe.com slash insider. Again, that's cafe.com slash insider. So I want to end this week's episode with a, a brief rumination on the old adage, you can judge a person by their enemies. And so in this regard, I'm a very proud person. I've been put on some serious enemies lists. Russian President Vladimir Putin banned me alongside 17 other American public servants some years ago from entering Russia following the passage of the Magnitsky Act in 2013. I'm also not welcome in Turkey. President Erdogan effectively barred me after we prosecuted Reza Zarab, a gold trader whom my former office accused of violating sanctions on Iran. That's not to mention the variety of pro-Trump groups who have called me names, grouped me in with other critics. And of course, I was fired by the president. And I was thinking about all these predictions that were being made by QAnon and other folks 
that the inauguration was going to be the scene of a mass arrest of Democrats, Biden supporters, who were finally going to be relegated to the gulag or some such thing for their conduct. And I, I went on Twitter and, and, I, and I posted this tweet, quote, as far as I can tell, QAnon did not have me on the list of people to be arrested yesterday and tried by military tribunal. I feel this makes me an underachiever. I'll get over it eventually, but I will try to do better, end quote. And obviously I was speaking tongue in cheek and I didn't mean to joke about the real danger that QAnon poses. In fact, the very, very smart Watergate prosecutor, Jill Weinbanks, admonished me correctly, quote, don't joke about this. They are a real threat, close quote. And of course they are a very serious threat as evidenced by their central role in the Capitol siege on January 6th and by all sorts of other kinds of violence that they've encouraged with crazy conspiracy theories over the past number of years. But I do believe very strongly more than ever the principle that you should judge a person by their enemies. But in response to my tweet, an astute commenter directed me to a somewhat tongue-in-cheek Village Voice article that I'd never seen before, way back from 1973, which kind of tickled me and is on point. The article by Phil Tracy is entitled The Shame of Being Left Off Nixon's Enemies List, which you will recall, Nixon had an actual documented enemies list. The piece was published in July of 1973, just days after former White House counsel John Dean provided the Senate Watergate Committee with a hard copy of the official written list. And the article offers sympathy for those Nixon critics who were deemed not worthy of being in the crosshairs of this increasingly unhinged White House and increasingly unhinged president, Richard Nixon. The article is pretty funny, and I commend it to your attention also. In it, Tracy writes, quote, what newspaper is going to shell out hard cash for a columnist whose opinions are so tame that even the White House doesn't consider him dangerous? It also makes reference to particular people who didn't make it onto the enemies list, like Shirley MacLaine, for instance, spent nearly all of 1972 trying to defeat Richard Nixon. How does she face her former friends in the McGovern camp, knowing that Gregory Peck gave Nixon more sleepless nights because he was on the list? Poor Joan Baez's singing career is also in ruins. What dewy-eyed teenager will ever again listen to Joan's wobbling laments for peace, love, and brotherhood after learning Joe Namath struck greater fear in the corridors of the establishment? Best of all is Phil Tracy's solution to address the clear and apparent inequities of this list. Quote, the only rational solution is that the list must be open and that people be allowed to plead their case for inclusion as an enemy of Nixon. It is incumbent upon the president to immediately name an impartial investigator to review the entire list and hear arguments from those who have so unfairly been left off. He goes on to write that the investigator must have a reputation for impeccable honesty and no friendships with people who might be considered eligible for the list. Since obviously no one in America fits that description, my personal suggestion is that the president nominate the Pope. After all, he's already had experience in deciding who should or should not become saints, end quote. By the way, the journalist who penned that amazing piece, Phil Tracy, was not just writing a one-off takedown of, you know, creepy cultish list making. He would later move to San Francisco, where he would play a major role in exposing the criminal conduct of Jim Jones's cultish People's Temple. So the principle endures. You can judge a person by the enemies they have, not just by the friends they have. So thank you to Twitter user Chaz Miller 18 who brought that article from 1973 to my attention, and for Twitter for showing me that I'm not the first one to feel cheated by being left off a crazy, creepy list. And thanks also to all the journalists and truth-tellers who are, as Phil Tracy did a half century ago, holding conspiracy theorists to account. And so may you all have wonderful friends and worthy enemies. 
Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Dana Bash. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to staytuned at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by Cafe Studios. Your host is Preet Bharara. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The senior producer is Adam Waller. The technical director is David Tattashore. And the CAFE team is Matthew Billy, David Kurlander, Sam Ozer-Staden, Noah Azulai, Nat Wiener, Jake Kaplan, Jeff Eisenman, Chris Boylan, Sean Walsh, and Margot Maley. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. 